Welcome to episode 97 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Jean Brunson. She is a first-generation American who served in the Army. She joined the Army at 17 and served for 16 years between active duty reserves and IRR. She has been working in the mental health field for the past six years and received a Master's of Social Work from USC in military mental health and has worked with veterans who have been diagnosed with invisible injuries such as post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury, and military sexual trauma. In today's interview, we talked about her experience of being in Iraq, the challenge of being dual military, and her transition out of the military. It's another great interview, so let's get started. You're listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm Amanda Huffman. I'm an Air Force veteran, author of Women of the Military, and a collaborative author of Brave Women, Strong Faith. I am also a military spouse and mom. I created Women of the Military podcast as a place to share stories of military women past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Welcome to the show, Jean. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you. I'm excited to be here as well. Thank you so much. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? I decided to join when I was 17. I grew up in Hawaii and there's a lot of military presence there. And then, you know, my dad's in the military. I have uncles that served as well. But it was more so of a way for me to want to gain independence. And during the time, I was my senior year, there was a lot of like home stuff going on, you know, so it just was a, it was a very toxic environment. My mom was married to her ex-husband at the time. And I mean, I, I knew I always wanted to go to college, but trying to go to college and live at, in a toxic place was definitely not going to happen. And so like one day I went into my counselor's op- my guidance counselor's office and she's like, why don't you take the ASVAB? You know, they, they have it every Saturday and at six o'clock in the morning. I'm like, really, really, Miss Allen? Miss Allen was her name. And so I just gave it a whirl. And yeah, I mean, I scored. I just took it. I didn't even study. And then little, you know how they are, the recruiters, they just get your information and they start to call you. And, you know, I got calls from the Coast Guard, the Marine Corps, the Army, the Air Force. So yeah, I, I really joined as a way to get away from home, but also gain my independence. And I knew that there was a way to get college paid for. I think at the time it was Montgomery. So the Montgomery GI Bill was going on at that time. So those are my reasons. Yeah, that makes sense. So this was all going on during high school. And then how quickly after you graduated high school did you head off to boot camp? So I actually joined the National Guard when I was 17. Um, I joined in February 2004. So I was drilling while I was still in high school. And honestly, I really didn't know nothing about the military. I just was like, all right, let me go. So I joined the National Guard at 17. I was drilling. And then that summer, August, I went to boot camp at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. But I told my recruiter, I'm like, well, let me have the summer. I still want to party with my friends and have a good time, you know? Um, so he's like, all right, we have August because they were looking to ship me out like the day after I graduated from high school. So it wasn't until August that I went to boot camp, but I was already drilling from February until then. Yeah, a lot of the people I talked to who enlisted in high school, they go like right after graduation. So that was pretty smart that you were like, no, I want my last summer of <laughs> hanging out with my friends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So did you stay in the National Guard or did you go on active duty? I went active duty. So when I got back, and that's the thing, like, it wasn't really explained to me. And I think during that time, it was during the time where they're just trying to ramp up for the war and just get people in. And so I was under the idea that I was going to be active duty, but that's not what it was. So I came back and then I drilled for a few more months. I think it was like back in the guard. I stayed in the guard for about six months. I wrote a letter to the Sergeant Major of the California National Guard. They conditionally released me. They released me. And then I went active duty. And then from active duty, I went to Fort Hood. So I was stationed with the quartermaster unit. And went, and then I was there for 30 days and got my CIF issue and was downrange within a month. So Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> that's so crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were nuts. like, welcome to Texas, and now you're going to... That's exactly what it was. They're like, you know we're deploying, right? And I was like, like next year? And they're like, no, 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 in 30 days. <laughs> I'm like, dang. So once I got there, I had to catch up with everybody else, you know, with medical and getting everything in order. I mean, I really didn't get to know my platoon until we were in Kuwait. So, I mean, they would see me checking out for PT formation, things like that. But it wasn't until we got to Kuwait that I actually really started to make bonds with people. And what year was it when you went to Kuwait? Was that for the spin up of uh, the Iraq war or? Yeah. So I went, so we went to, I went in 2004. October 2005, we went to Kuwait. We went down to Buring. I think we were there for like three weeks. We had to do that little training, get familiarized when we got in theater. And then um, we didn't go down to Iraq until later on in that October. So we went to Kuwait for a little bit, stayed there, did mock-up trainings that they had and convoy trainings. And then from Kuwait, we went to um, Iraq. And how long were you in Iraq? A year. We were there for a full year. And what was that experience like? You were, you were, really young because you had just graduated and you didn't really know your unit very well. So what was that experience like? You know, um, I was just having a talk with one of my friends. She actually, she's an Air Force veteran too. Uh, she's in my the company I work for. But it's really weird to think back, like being so young. Like I remember like the buses picking us up and, you know, us being yelled at not to look at the curtains. And, and then when we got there, we finally like grounded all our gear and it was just hot and it's like tent city. You really don't even know like what you're walking into. I don't even think it like settles in that you're like going to war, you know? And so that experience was really long. I will say that. I don't know that I could have done it now as a mom. Like I, I see my counterparts and my friends that go through um, being deployed. And I mean, even my sister, she's she was in the Navy for eight years. So she was in and out to see with her, you know, with her being a mom and stuff. So it was really tough. There's a lot of, a lot of like, mental like a lot of mental breakdowns I would say and it wasn't just me a lot of people um and I think there are some times where you get a little complacent you know and because you've been there for a year you kind of just develop a routine and you get used to the sounds and things like that and it becomes a habitual thing but for the most part the friend that I have till today she was my roommate she was probably one of the reasons why like I really made it back and stayed sane and get, didn't get tried not to get depressed and stuff like that. You know, I mean, it's a year is a long time. I don't think we really capture that. And when you're there and you're like counting down the days, like it doesn't go by any quicker, you know, and I know, you know, so it's like, come on, 2006, where are you at? You know? Yeah. I I had a countdown. (laughs) I remember that. 
What was your job? I, I skipped over that. So what was your job when you were in the Army? So when I was in, I mean, um, I was a fueler. I've been with quartermaster units. So we did like bulk fuel. When we were in Iraq, our mission was bulk fuel, but we did ECP, uh, Tower Guard. Uh, we also did the aviation missions. So yeah, I was a fueler, 92 Fox. And then the units that I was with was a quartermaster unit, a trucking unit. Um, and then my last unit that I was with was aviation unit. And that, that was very different for me, just coming from line platoons and then being around a bunch of like brass, you know, just pilots and captains and lieutenants. And their main mission is just to medevac people. So that, that was really nice. And, and to be honest, it was like a lot of respect for the things that they have to do, sort of just like the, the amount of rest they have to get and the training that goes into them being pilots. Like, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. So did you have to run any convoys when you were in Iraq or was your mission no. on the base? Okay. Our, um, my first sergeant at the time, like his main mission was I, we came with 200 bodies. He wanted to leave. There was a couple of people that got selected to do special missions with the other units that were there, but he really wanted us to focus on keeping FOB security, just keeping everyone safe. So, you know, we had multiple like guard, there was a lot of, there, there was a, pretty good amount of towers out there and uh, ECP control. So Yeah. So you went to Iraq, you built friendships with like your roommate and other people, and then you came back. And what was it like to come back to the States after being gone for a year? I think you kind of feel lost. Like, you know, every everyone, I mean, I, I guess now I can see it. Like everyone's still living and everyone's lives are still going on, but there's things that you don't, you know, you're just not used to like different songs, different music, popular culture. I know there was like a time when I came back and my sister was like, you never heard this song? And I'm like, no, I've been gone for like a year. I don't, I don't even know what this is. Right. So I think really having to grasp your mind around like, wow, I was really gone for a year. And then when I got back, it was really tough to like sleep. I didn't even recognize how horrible my sleep was or that I wasn't sleeping. And I think when you're downrange, you're really ramped up. Like there is no sleep cycle. You know, you're, even though if we did 12 on, 12 off, like when you're 12 off, you're trying to get those other things done. You're trying to get your laundry done, maybe answer some emails if you can get to the MWR. I mean, when I went, we still had to walk to the phone. What was it called? The phone centers or the MWR. Um, We had to buy like a phone card and things like that. So, you know, there'd be months when I wouldn't even really like talk to my family because I'm like, do I want to walk in a thousand degrees or don't want to get this rest because I don't want to be tired while I'm out there like guarding the base and stuff like that. So it was tough coming back, I would say. Yeah. And I think the transformation of technology and like when I got to the base, we just had the MWR tents, but they had individual computers. But then when I left, they had Wi-Fi and it was like brand new. And it was like so exciting to have Wi-Fi. Wow. That is crazy. That is crazy. Like I had, I remember like having to go to friends and who had laptops at the time and ask them if I could like upload music to MP3 player because I just needed some music, you know, while I'm like on duty or at the gym. I I remember people like carrying like CD players. Like like, it was, wow, this is so crazy. So yeah. Yeah. And the music, I think when I was at Bagram, I went on the bus and there was like music and I was like, I never heard this before because <laughs> it was like you just had whatever music you left with. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. It's kind of like you're in a time warp where like everything is going on back home, but like you feel like your life is just standing still. 
trying to get through. Yeah. And then you come, you come back and you're like, oh, life was still happening. Yeah. <laughs> just not for me. Yeah. Um, but I, I just also feel too, right? Like being that young um, and being out there, like you really, you don't really know, like you're really forced to grow up fast, like making these decisions and sort of being, uh, being an adult, like you're, you're required to arrive at this moment of being an adult. And I don't know that people realize the severity uh, that they're asking us, you know, maybe as teenagers to, Hey, you need to be, even though you need to be at the right place at the right time, you're now going into a war zone and it's still hard to capture your mind, like get your mind surrounded, you know, with that. And so, yeah, that was tough. Like, wow, like we're really in Iraq. Like this is really going on. You can look out and see these people like in their houses. Like that's scary. You know, like you're sort of like a sitting target and, and, you know, the, the ROEs at the time, like you can't engage if, even if you see them doing anything suspicious. So it was definitely rough to just be out there looking at it, you know? Yeah, that's really hard. So what happened after you got home? Did you stay at Fort Hood or did you move to a new base or what happened? So I stayed at Fort Hood um, until 2008 and then I ETSed out and then I went into the reserves. So then I came back to California where my mom was at and then I went and then I stayed reserved the whole time after that. So yeah, and then that's when I got introduced to a new culture of reservists, like you know, being on active duty is one thing and there's certain standards and this and that and being squared away. But like when you come to the reserves, it's its its own culture as well. Like definitely they wear the uniform, but you have people who are managing two jobs, two careers, you know, so they have their civilian side of the house where they're managing this and then or their nurses or their directors. And then on the weekends or one week in a month, three, three weeks out of a year, which I found out later on. <laughs> you know, they're sergeants, they're captains, they're lieutenants. So it was really, it, it was really eye-opening for me because I know sort of like on active duty, you know, we pride ourselves like weak, you know, they're weekend warriors and this and that. But it wasn't until like I joined the reserves or I transferred into the reserves that I realized the sacrifices that they make as well. Some of them get deployed and they don't know anyone in their unit, you know, but they get pulled because they have that MOS that that unit might need or that command might need. And I also see the value in still wanting to serve, but still also wanting to accomplish different goals on the outside of the army. You know what I mean? So the reserves definitely afforded me that opportunity as well later on, which I I didn't know until, you know, I grew up and stuff like that. So So you went from active duty to the reserves and did you like doing that transition, like slowly stepping away from the military instead of like totally stepping away? It was, it was tough at first because so my my husband, he was my boyfriend at the time. He got deployed with the unit that I, he got deployed with the unit and I didn't get stop loss. And so that's why I got out. And I was like, well, if they don't stop loss me, then I need to go home. I need to go and help my mom and things like that. So having to sort of make that decision to pivot my military career was definitely tough. You know, I was up for promotion and I had went to the board. So having him downrange with the unit that and my platoon that I knew, super tough. And I think it was like a also a feeling of guilt, like, you know, like, well, I should have been with them. I should have did this. Um, and then when you hear like your battle buddies and stuff downrange on convoys and they're getting injured and medevaced and stuff like that, again, it starts to settle in and you're like, 
damn, I, I should have been there. I should have did that. And and I know you can relate to this too, and many of us can. Um, it's just sort of like that culture, like you're taking care of the person to the left and right of you. You know what I mean? So, Yeah. Yeah, that would be a really hard transition. And you mentioned stop loss, and that's when you get deployed overseas, even though your commitment's over and you have to stay in until yeah. you get home. <laughs> They're like, oh, no, you're not. No, no, we're just going to extend you. Yeah, that's what we're going to do. Yeah. My guest, Pamela Chavez, earlier in last year, she talked about it. And then I was like, oh, that's what stop loss is. <laughs> I heard the term, but I didn't know. And I was like, yeah. oh, that's kind of jacked up. <laughs> oh, yeah. People were mad. It, on my first deployment, people were mad. Yeah. So you were able to get out, but then you still felt really connected. Your boyfriend, now husband, was overseas. And yeah, that'd be like a lot of moving pieces and a lot of like emotional stuff. So. And, and so when I got to the reserves, I got a two year stabilization letter. So I didn't have to deploy, but when I got there, they got orders that Jan following January to go down to Afghanistan. So it was still like I was on active duty because here I am transferring out into the reserves to go to school. And then now I'm becoming their rear D. And so I'm doing all their paperwork and I'm going on all their trainings and their TDYs because they need personnel to fall into the rear and take care of them while they ramp up for, for Afghanistan. So deployment, I mean, especially during that time, deployment was common. You know, I think now the military seems to have slowed down a bit, but back then it was just like everyone was going. Like your chances of being home was not, not happening. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I deployed in 2010 and everybody was going. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So were you able to go to school or were you so busy helping with the deployment in the back office that you weren't able to do that? Or were you just really busy? Yeah. So I was able to go to school. Um, and so when I went into the reserves and I started school, actually, when I got out, I went to cosmetology school uh, first. And I was like, wow, you know, I, I really loved hair and makeup and things of that sort. And then it was midway through um my Cosmo school that I had got pregnant with my son. Um, me and my husband were about to have my son. And I also enrolled into junior college. So I went to a JC before I transferred to San Diego State. So yeah, so I graduated from Cosmo school. I got licensed. So I'm a licensed cosmetologist too. And then I had my son and then I transferred over to San Diego State. And, and I was still in the reserves at the time. So it was definitely a lot of moving pieces, but I also am one of those planners that I need like plan A, plan B, plan C, plan C, you know, um, just because when you transition out of the military, there's definitely no like manual or there's no, hey, here's step one, here's step two, here's step three, here's what you need to do, visit the VA, do these things. There, there was none of that. So a lot of the word of mouth came from other veterans, other people that I encountered and other like people that I, that I served within the reserves that came off active duty as well. So it, it was, it was definitely a good transition in the, in the sense that I always wanted to go to college and I still wanted to serve in the military and now I was becoming a mom. So I was able to become a parent, go to school and, you know, and then my husband was trans, he was starting to transition out of active duty. So it was, it was really good. Yeah. Sounds like a lot, but sounds like you were, it was good for you. Determined, determined. <laughs> so he got out of the military after he got home from his deployment. Mm -hmm. 
did he transition to the reserves or did he just get out? He did. I um, encouraged him because, you know, he still wanted to serve. And again, you know, during that time, he he's, he's a chef now. Uh, he's always loved to cook. So he um, was like, you know, babe, I don't know that I'm ready to stop serving. And I was like, you know, well, I'm in the reserves. Here's what you can expect. It is totally different from active duty. Um, you can still be high speed, but you also need to recognize that a lot of these soldiers have not been active duty. So there's a different type of lifestyle for reservists versus active duty. Um, so yeah, so he transitioned into reservists and then he went to school as well. Both used the GI Bill, which thankfully was around post 9-11. It was, it, was, it was nice. It was nice to have sort of that break, but also be able to just focus on your education. So you guys used the post 9-11 GI Bill and... It worked really nicely with both of you because that gives you a BH stipend and pays for, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Especially here in San Diego. And then, and then the unique thing about this is sort of like I mentioned, I was pregnant with my son. So it definitely allowed us a time to be home with him. So we worked our schedule out where like there was days my husband would go to school that I would be home. And so you could build your schedule. And it was nice because so my son had like a really good secure attachment. He always had mom and dad around him. Very seldomly would grandma step in or auntie step in. But uh, for the most part, it was me and my husband raising our son. And, you know, and there there were times when we had uh, annual training on the same days because we were under the same battalion, um, but different companies. And so, again, you know, much like dual military, we figured it out. And our family care plan was definitely my sister-in-law who lived in Maryland. So my husband... He'd go fly my son to Maryland and then I'd go and pick my son up, you know, so it was like a tag team effort. And I don't know that people even think about that when when you think like dual military, you know, or in the reserves, like that's not tough. Like, no, it. there were times where like, Jesus, how are we even going to manage like a final having to fly this kid across the country so that it's a safe place and then come back finish the final and then go to AT for the next three weeks, you know, or, well, actually like a month because you need a time to like unwind and then go back and fly out there to pick my son up. So kudos to my sister-in-law. She, she's, she's my A1. Um, and I tell, you know, I don't think anyone can serve without support, especially as a parent, you know? Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that a lot of people don't think about how dual military are not just active duty, but dual military reservists or National Guards and like how you have to figure that out. And like you said, like having to fly to Maryland to drop off. That's crazy. Yeah. But it makes sense because that's military life. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I definitely have friends that are like, you know, you don't you don't feel guilty like leaving them there. I'm like, no, like I think he's going to be in a safe environment. My sister-in-law has three kids, so she's been doing this three times longer than I have. She sends me photos. We have at that time, you know, we had FaceTime. It just started. I was like, I, I feel very confident in her parenting skills, and I know that if anything, she she won't hold back. And so now, because of that, my son goes to Maryland every summer. That's his that's his routine. Like he looks forward to that, or his cousins come here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So how long did you serve in the reserves? So I served in the reserves from 2008 to 2016. And then from 2016 until just recently, I went into the IRR um, to finish my uh, master's degree. Again, I just wanted to really focus in on school. And during my bachelor's program, um, you know, 
I was kind of set back a couple semesters because I had to go to AT and things like that. And so, yeah. And so actually recently I've been talking with the retention NCO to see what some of my options are to come back in and commission as an officer. Um, Cause I definitely want to finish up my time. And, you know, I mean, I, I feel like there's just a lot of benefits too, to serving and, and if you can finish your time and your body's able to do it, then why not? Yeah, that sounds really cool. So are you in the process of doing your packet for OTS? Yeah, so I am talking to retention right now. There's two options. So um, I definitely am either going to go back as a enlisted and then reclass another MOS and then uh, drop my packet maybe a year, 18 months later. Or I'm going to apply for the social work program that the Army has. It's called the SWIP program. It's a pretty small program. Um, I applied last year and I didn't get it. But I've been encouraged, you know, from friends and stuff, just reapply again. And my recruiter as well, he's like, just reapply. You never know. Um, And as we both know, like mental health has sort of become a really big theme in the military. And they're always looking for for social workers and mental or behavioral health officers. So um, we'll see what, what, what happens. I mean, either way, like, I'm kind of like in a good place where I can choose the path. It's not like when I was 17 where they just stuck me in a fueler slot. Nothing wrong with being a fueler. Like I, I love that job, but I think where I'm at right now is ready for a new, a new transition and to learn a new skill. Yeah, that makes sense. I think sometimes when you're enlist, and especially when you like don't really know what you're doing, which I feel like is so many people, you're oh, like, yeah. the, job, the recruiter's like, yeah, that job is great. <laughs> and you're like, Wait, what did you sign me up for? <laughs> Such the truth. Oh my God. Yes. Yes. That was me. I'm one of them. So, but it's all good. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, I met great people. So I, I can never complain about that. Yeah. That's really cool that you're in the process of going back in and finishing. And that's really cool that you can step away and then go back. I never really thought, like, obviously the door is not closed forever on military, but that's just something to keep in mind. Like you can step away and then if life changes and you need to go back, but it's an option, do that. So that's pretty cool. Thank you. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what you're doing today. What are you doing today? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm home now because of COVID, but, uh, you know, the, the safe and stay. So right now I work for a really uh, a big nonprofit in the veteran and military sector, and I'm one of their mental health specialists there. So I facilitate uh, groups. There's male veterans, uh, all male veteran groups, all female veterans and couples groups. Um, and so for the male and female veterans, we're really focused on sort of rebuilding that camaraderie, teaching them coping skills, how to thrive uh, despite stress and other variables that may come in your life. So really teaching them how to be resilient to sort of incorporating and transitioning into civilian lifestyle, if you will. With our couples, we're re-engaging them and reconnecting them. So sort of building like their friendship level and teaching them really good conflict management skills. And then we do talk about some ways that maybe previous trauma may uh, bleed over into the relationship now or, or helping some of the spouses who may not have served or had any military connection really understand their spouse and what they might have went through during their military service. So that's sort of like the what I do in a nutshell with the organization that I'm with. And I these groups are really ran uh, pretty monthly and they're ha- they happen all throughout the United States. They're free to the veterans and their family members. Um, we just ask that they show up with an open mind, um, ready to have fun. 
where we do them outdoors, rain, snow, summertime, it really doesn't matter. Like we're really getting back to getting outside. So it also, it has like a recreational therapy component to it. So it's really nice. Because I'm um, also a military social worker, I, I am also working on becoming licensed. On my weekends, I see clients one-on-one individually and families and couples as well to get my clinical licensure. So uh, that's also fun as well. So if they're looking for that, they can definitely find me on LinkedIn or on Facebook and ask, you know, we can get talking and do some assessments and see, you know, what kind of therapy you're looking for. Yeah, that sounds great. That's that's a really great resource, especially for people who need it. So that's that's a good thing to let people know about. That's awesome. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything else from your military experience or from your time, even going forward back into the military that you wanted to talk about that we missed? No, I mean, I think for the most part, um, I had a really good run. You know what I will say to female veterans or maybe females that are thinking about joining the military is definitely um, have the confidence to stick up for yourself and stand up for yourself. It is a it is a man's world sometimes, but that doesn't mean, you know, you don't have to speak up. Right. Like, I think there are there were times when because a lot of, you know, my job at MOS was definitely male dominated that I wish I would have spoken up and said things opposed to letting it roll off my back. And if, it, if there are things or comments that make you feel uncomfortable, definitely speak up, you know, or find someone that you feel safe enough to share, share this information with and don't hold on to it. Yeah, that's really good advice. I think sometimes being the minority, it feels like it's just easier to go with the flow. But sure. if you're uncomfortable or if you don't like what's happening, you you don't have to take it and you can speak up and and find someone if you if you feel like you need to that you can okay. trust. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you so much for your time and for your advice for well just for mental health and for young women and women who are currently serving in the military. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is this was fun. listening to this week's episode of women of the military podcast do you love all things women of the military podcast become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review it really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow are you still listening you could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book women of the military on amazon every dollar helps helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.